0: If you have your Bibles, would like to, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 6. This morning on the last Sunday of July, we bring this series through Ephesians that we began on the first Sunday of May to a close. Paul is finished with his amazingly beautiful, deep description of who God is for us in Christ In the gospel, how our redemption in Christ is the realization of God's eternal purpose for all creation. And how all of this is meant to impact our lives personally and together as the church since we are the body of Christ in this world. Paul wrote this letter to tell the Ephesians that the church is the one place in his creation where his reconciling work of Christ is on clearest and fullest display. That provides the reason for and gives the shape of our unity as well as our identity as children of light in the world. He wants the Ephesian Christians and beloved by extension of the Holy Spirit, the Moundsville Christians, to have a tighter grasp on who we are in relation to Christ, to the church, and to the world. But Ephesians doesn't end like some of Paul's letters do, maybe with a simple summary of the facts. It ends with a call to arms that is meant to stir up our faith. The church is at war. Let me say that again. The church is at war. We are being actively attacked by Satan and his forces all over the world all the time. Personally and corporately as a body. Satan has been decisively defeated, and he is furious about it. And he hates us because we are the living, walking proof in the world today, as the body of Christ, that this is the truth. But the message here is not fear because we're at war. It's comfort and encouragement. Paul literally believes the victory has already been won. And the wording here, which is very important actually let us us know that we are not on the offensive in this war. We are on the defensive. Now, the connotation of that is negative. But it isn't because we're being overrun. We're on the defensive because we've won, and for all intents and purposes, it's over. Jesus is risen, and He reigns from the Father's right hand while God is making all His enemies into a footstool for His feet. Most of all, the devil himself and all of his forces. The kingdom of Jesus has overcome this world. And Satan is angry. Because he knows what that means. He knows what his future is. So he's pulled out all the stops. Or is at least trying to. And with our strength found in the Lord. And in the power of his might. Every member of the church is called to put on God's armor. To stand against Satan's schemes. Since the victory is won. And God means to rescue sinners through our proclamation of the gospel. So let me pray, and we'll begin. Father, thank you for this word from you concerning your son and your church this morning. God, help me preach in such a way that all might be able to hear and understand and believe the truth about Jesus. Help everyone to listen well, open every heart, to understand, Father, to grasp what you're telling us here for the sake of our souls and the sake of your name. I ask and pray for these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Beginning in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. "...against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Jesus Christ accomplished at the cross has cosmic, eternal, global, comprehensive implications." It is full and final and decisive, beloved, that not only has our redemption been fully won, but God's plan for the fullness of time has been accomplished in His Son, and the means by which He will bring human history to a close, according to that purpose, is now set in motion and can't be turned back or stopped by anyone or any force or any authority or anything. Jesus cannot be stopped. The salvation of people from every nation means is proof of the fact that Jesus reigns from the Father's right hand right now. The gospel is indestructible, and the spread of it will continue until every last lost sheep is found. This means the end of Satan's kingdom is imminent. Imminent, sorry. The devil is a defeated foe, and so rather than fighting head on, he's a schemer. right? This is um, much like... The difference between, if you remember, Desert Storm and having a war against Iraq and how quickly and decisively that was over. And so they learned very quickly, okay, we can't fight this force head on. We're going to have to splinter into little groups so that if you kill one, another one rises up and you can't find where the center of it is. And that's what Satan is basically doing. He's been defeated on the front. He knows he can't win. And so now he just schemes, mainly actively working all the time from the shadows against Jesus and his church. He is on the offensive because he's lost and he's panicking. He's the one that has to gain ground and take over things, not us. Jesus has already done it. So Paul says to us in verse 10, to the Ephesian Christians in Rome in his day, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So God asks for none of our own muscles. He lays none of the responsibility for the strength to fight this battle on us. He isn't telling us, you're at war, now figure out a way to fight, figure out a way to strategize. He tells us, your strength comes from me. You're strong when you're in me. The Christian strength is found in our faith. Faith that takes hold of Christ. Not in our works. It's not in our skills or our talents or our strategies or our wills. That's not where our strength or our power comes from. God hasn't put the weight of winning this war on our backs. He carried the weight of the world on His shoulders. We don't build our own armor. We don't bring our own armor or weapons and show God what we have. We put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the devil's schemes in verse 11. That's a different kind of fighting. Someone scheming rather than putting up their hands and going toe-to-toe with us. This is different. Our defense, then, is what the gospel says is true about us and about the world because of Jesus Christ. And when we're clothed in and surrounded by Christ and all that He is for us in this gospel, that is when we are able to stand. That's the repeated command here. If you'll notice, it's not fight. It's not put on the armor and fight. It's put on the armor and stand. He says it over and over again. Just stand your ground in Christ, beloved. Jesus is Lord. God is putting all His enemies under His feet. Jesus is building the church. His enemies are under His feet. You and I, we just stand then, right in that kingdom, right where He has us. Satan would bowl us over in a second. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against Jesus. They can't stop him from building the church. No matter how sharp the beast's teeth become, their worst weapon, death, was used and it backfired on the devil horrifically. All they can do now, he and his minions, is thrash and weep. We have to put on God's armor and stand in verse 12 because we don't wrestle against people. That's not where the front line of the war is with the forces of people who are seeking to do evil things and establish evil things in the world. They are not our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That last sentence, Paul clarifies exactly what he means. If our enemies were human and worldly, then we wouldn't need or be able to use the armor of God to fight them, or to stand, but they aren't. Our enemies are spiritual, which makes them very real, more real even than a natural enemy, and much more threatening. Right? All all that the world can do now, again, we've said this before, is the worst they can do is kill us, which just sends us right to the Father. So, a spiritual enemy that threatens our faith and our ability to stand in Christ, that is much more threatening and much more potent. That that means you don't even have to live in an area where you're literally being martyred for your faith in order to be in danger in this war of losing everything. We battle this. how he says this here. Paul reminds us that even though Christ has won the victory... The war, the cleanup, isn't over as long as you and I remain in this age. He says this present darkness, which is going to apply because the Word is living to the entire time between Jesus' ascension and His second coming. It is this present darkness. That's what this age is. That's the state of the world because Satan is actively blinding people. We discover in Second Corinthians 4 to the light of God's glory in Christ that's being revealed by the Gospel. Satan is blinding them. He darkens the world spiritually so that they can't see. We battle internally, of course, against our own flesh, which Peter says is waging its own war against our redeemed souls, right? The Spirit in us. That's the new man, by the way. The Holy Spirit in us. It's not us. It's Him. So we battle internally against our own flesh. We battle against what on a horizontal level are visible enemies, right? To the truth, false teachers, oppressive governments, pagan neighbors, the enticements of our old lives. But Paul reminds us these are not the real enemies, or at least not the ones that are truly a threat to you and I, because our souls are safe in Christ and his point here in verse twelve is not that there are when he when he says this, it's not telling us there are particular orders of rank or chain of command among demons, fallen angels. He's telling us that there is tremendous diversity in Satan's subordinates. They're everywhere, and they're behind everything that's evil. Not that doesn't mean that every time you and I sin, a demon was making us do it. Right? That's not how that. Works James will say that we don't even need that to sin. We sin because we're enticed in our flesh and, and because of our desires. Satan just works with the raw material we give him. right? So that isn't what is happening. It's that this worldly system we live in all the time of arrogance and self-exaltation and rebellion against God is Satan's scheming. He's at work in all of it, in every sphere of human life, government, work, music, art, entertainment, all of it, all of it, literature, everything, to rip people away from Jesus. That's why we have that summary statement at the end, so that he's being clear. He's saying, listen, I'm talking about all the spiritual forces of evil that are at work in the heavenly places. And when he says the heavenly places, he doesn't mean the dwelling place of God. Heavenly places where God's realm and His throne is, heavenly places in the spiritual sense, the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, where we were told in chapter 2, verse 2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He infects the very air we breathe, spiritually speaking. He only has power over that which is beneath God. Remember that. These forces of evil are not above us. That's not why... We're trying to stand against them. Remember, you and I are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's how important him telling us that was back in chapter 2. Where are we spiritually? We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, with his enemies, therefore, under our feet, also in one twenty through 22 In chapter 2, verse 6, Satan and his minions operate in the spiritual places of the world, under heaven, the spiritual realm. We can't see with our own eyes. But it's there. It's there right now. Everywhere. But the fact that our enemy is cosmic and spiritual, and we don't actually wrestle against flesh and blood, is not to scare us. Just as it wasn't meant to scare the Ephesian Christians, but to remind us of where the real danger lies, beloved. And encourage us to treat our fellow human beings then as blinded prisoners in need of mercy. We are not to see them as our enemies. And if we keep thinking they are where the fight is, that, that understand that Satan is doing that. So that you won't think the gospel is all I have for these people. That's the last thing the devil wants you to think. So he gets Christians to engage in politics more than... The spiritual realm and it's not wrong for a Christian to engage in politics. We just need to remember that's not where the real fight is. We can help bring about healthy change in a society or protect rights in a society that are good. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing unChristian about that. This is not that we have to understand that what's wrong with the world is that they're lost. What's wrong with them isn't mainly that they disagree with us politically or ideologically. It's that they're lost. And it's a spiritual battle for their souls. It's not a battle for territory and all these things, all these worldly things that will pass away, that will be taken away before the end anyway, beloved. Recognize what comes from God and what is coming from the devil. Those who reject Christ and serve Satan by carrying out his schemes are not the enemy. Now, I know that's very hard. Because we do see them, right? It feels like they are the enemy that we're fighting against. Uh, these forces that are trying to, you know, take away morality or take away the. And, and listen, it, beloved, we are here mainly for souls, for what is spiritual and real in a person. All this is transient. All politics are transient. All worldviews are transient, temporary. They're not going to last. The soul of every human being you and I know and everyone we've never met is eternal. Eternal. Right? So we have to engage on those terms. Those people are blinded. They're trapped. They don't know the difference between us and them is not that we're better than them. The difference is that God has shown the light on us and caused us to believe by his spirit and his word. And he hasn't done that yet for them. That's why they're unbelieving. So we, we don't stand in superiority to them. We don't look down on them. We we are here for them. For them. If, if we can't see them as a soul, because all of our hope for life and joy and peace is in this world, and that's what they threaten, we won't be able to move to them in mercy and with the gospel. We will we'll think that's secondary. And, beloved, the gospel is never secondary. It's always primary. Always These are Christ's weapons. The truth, the gospel. We aren't here to establish an earthly kingdom. Beloved, we aren't even here to do away with evil or to clear the land for some Christian empire. No, 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 no. We are here to stand right where God has us as points of light clothed in the armor of the God who saves sinners and sent His Son to seek them out through the church. All right. So pick it up in verse 13. Therefore, Because this is our battle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. You see it, how repetitive it is. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You do that with a shield, not with a sword. That's for something else. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. Paul speaks personally that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So the key to standing firm in the evil day of this present darkness Where Satan and his schemes infiltrate every ounce of this creation is to take up, put on the whole armor of God. In verse 13, he comes back to his original admonition from verse 11. What is the armor of God? Beloved, if you'll notice, it's made up of truth, peace, faith, salvation, and the Word of God. Everything won for us, secured for us by Christ that is ours, eternally, irrevocably, in Christ. That's the armor of God. Where every spiritual blessing we've been given in the heavenly places, right, from chapter 1, verse 4, where Satan is trying to steal victory from the jaws of defeat. We stand. That's a different command than advance for an army. Stand. Why not advance? Because we don't need to. We need to protect the truth and proclaim it. That's it. We don't need to take ground or destroy enemies. The Bible is so important. Isn't that a funny thing to say? But we forget it. Beloved, what did Jesus say? He has overcome the world. The enemies have been disarmed. Christ has triumphed over them in Colossians 2.15. Those words have meaning. Disarm the enemy That's why he schemes They have to scheme They can't fight us head on So we don't think in terms really of taking the battle to the devil That's, That's how desperation talks Or of attacking the sinful world around us Or storming the devil's strongholds And all this triumphalistic speech We always hear that's meant to pump us up When really all it's doing Is demeaning the already purchased victory of Christ By his blood and His resurrection. No, no, no. When when Jesus saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven during His ministry on the earth back in Luke 10.18, the implication there is that what the Gospel's impact on the world includes is the defeat of the devil just by the ministry of Jesus. You don't... Maybe I've shared this before. For some reason, this sticks out in my mind. When I lived in... Newark and I think Dresden Ohio for a time that there was a a Christian Channel Channel 51 um, And they had just different shows on and there was a lady that did a Bible study and when I say Bible study I mean not a Bible study at all. It was awful, but her name was Marilyn Hickey I didn't make that up. That's that's her Christian name. That's her name Marilyn Hickey she said that if you really want to get victory over Satan when you get up in the morning and she's being serious, write the devil's name on the bottom of your feet so that you trample on the devil all day. If I was the devil, I'd, I'd think that was hilarious. Right? You know how you defeat the devil, beloved? You preach the gospel. You tell people the gospel. The gospel means that the accuser is defanged and has nothing on us because of Christ. You want to get in Satan's crosshairs? Preach the gospel, right? Proclaim not, I don't mean as a pastor in a pulpit, I mean as a Christian. Proclaim the gospel. In Ephesians, notice that then. What the description of the armor means and the command to stand are implying is that the devil is attacking us, right? Not the other way around. So in one twenty and 21 and in 4.8, Jesus... Is on the offensive against the devil. He's the one fighting out front. The battle is the Lord's, remember? He is fighting so that the gospel gets to every tribe, language, people, and nation. So all our verbs, all the things we're doing are defensive. We stand against the devil's schemes in verse 11. We withstand in the evil day and stand firm in verse 13, while the devil attacks us with things like flaming arrows, which are spiritual arrows to kill our faith and make us doubt and disbelieve our God. We realize this in another way here when we see that this description of the armor here is not a standard description of a Roman soldier's armor. There's very important things missing from that. So if that's the image Paul wanted to give He would have worded this much differently There are not any offensive What were considered offensive Major offensive weapons here We don't have arrows We don't have javelins The long sword is not mentioned That's what's for advancing and attacking So the exhortation therefore Is to stand firm To hold the line Beloved it is not our strength That counts in this battle It is the Lord's We are certainly active in this battle, yes, but our sword is the Spirit. It's a defensive sword. It's the Word of God, which means we defend with truth because the truth stands and can't be conquered or beaten back, beloved. Truth doesn't depend on feelings or emotions. You've heard the statement, facts don't care about your feelings. That's truth, right? Truth is truth, so we just stand. It can't be changed. The gospel, the unchanging truth of Almighty God is our standard. A defensive posture doesn't mean we don't have anything to fight with. What it means is that God will not protect us without means or apart from means. But the weapons of His armor operate with and depend on His strength, not our own. So the battle plans follow His plans and instructions, not ours. That means the belt holding us together, holding all our armor together, is the truth of Jesus Christ. The breastplate protecting us is the righteousness that we've been given in Christ, so that the accusers' flaming arrows never pierce our hearts. Our combat boots make our feet beautiful, since we bring good news to the world with the gospel of peace, not war. Isn't that interesting? And we walk by faith, not by sight. Our shield extinguishes all of Satan's arrows because our shield is faith. What that means is that anything the devil can throw at us is quenched by the fact that God justifies sinners by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's our weapon. That's our standard. That's what Satan can't do anything about and neither can anybody else. No matter what accusations people throw at you, no matter how they feel about you, or think about you, or what your record actually says, or what crimes you have committed, or what sins you have done, the shield of faith means that you are rooted in Christ, washed by His blood, justified by His resurrection, and you cannot be taken away from Him. I'll amen if nobody else will. Praise God for this. Praise God for this. So the Christian needs nothing for battle but the unchanging, eternal, perfect Word of Almighty God. The center of which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We defend the truth against Satan's schemes, lies, with the Word of God, the truth. And in verse 18, we learn that to stand as a Christian ultimately means to kneel. Look at verse 18 one more time. Praying. With all this armor on, at all times, in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Pray with prayer. I love that. And supplication to that end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul is telling us here very clearly in summary... That when he says stand, he means proclaim the gospel and pray and nothing else. Notice how intentional and constant the fight is to stand against the devil for ourselves. But also we're doing that for the sake of all the saints. See how interconnected and inseparable we are, which is why it's so important we can't be at odds with one another. We can't, beloved. We can't afford that. Our souls cannot afford it. They can't bear the weight of other people's burdens and our own personal burdens and the burden of standing. Right, we, we have to genuinely trust in Christ and let this world and all our attachments to it go. And for that, it will have to be grace or it won't happen. This is why Paul tells Timothy that a good soldier doesn't get entangled with civilian affairs. right, With things that aren't the central fight because evil never sleeps. And Satan won't stop until, of course, God makes him stop and ends him with one final word. Until then, Satan's war against us rages, and the closer we get to the end, the more intense his scheming will become. So what does the stand of a Christian look like? Well, it looks from the outside like complete dependence on God through prayer and supplication, petitions, right? Supplication can be defined as firm persistence in an undertaking or circumstance. So, so we're, we're not just, our prayer lives and our prayers can be so thin, right? And I don't say that to condemn because prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. A prayer life is hard, right? I mean, it, it just is. And, and praying together is hard. Prayer is weird. You, we're, we're talking to someone that knows everything anyway and that we can't see and that doesn't, audibly answer back, at least not that I know of, right? Not in our day. So it, it's it's when you hear that command about how important prayer and that our prayers should be supplicating for ourselves and for all the saints beloved we're, we're hearing a, a, a burden we're unable to carry. So when we hear these commands, we have to run into Christ and say, God, I, I cannot do this. Please help me. Please help me. God chooses not to accomplish his ends apart from means. That that, That's why he tells us to pray. That's why he says very strange things like Jesus said. One of the strangest things Jesus ever said, pray to the Lord of the heart. The harvest is ripe and plentiful, but the laborers are few. That means God knows there aren't enough workers. So does God just have more workers pop up? No, no, no. He says, pray then. To the Lord of the harvest to send workers. So God is standing in front of the world as though it's a giant field that needs reaped. And he says, since I know that, ask me to send workers into it. Right? So this is how God chooses to achieve these means on the earth. So that's the battle we're engaged in. We're connected to the Lord of the harvest for the harvest. So, not just praying like we do and should do when we gather together, absolutely, but also joining with the Spirit that God may do His will. And really, I think maybe the best way to think through that, what it means to pray in the Spirit, is to remember in Romans 8 that we don't know how to pray for what we ought to pray. So, to pray in the Spirit is to pray in dependence that God knows what I need to say and can't, so God help me. Rather than being so sure that our words are going to do something, right? We want to join with the Spirit that is praying what God does want to hear. That we may do His will in and through us or He may do His will in and through us in the world. So the question is very quickly, does that type of neediness, longing for souls, for the devil to be spurned, Does that characterize our prayers? Does that enter into our prayers? Or do we see prayer as a personal tool for help and for blessing and things like that? And listen, it's not that prayer isn't for you personally. Of course it is. But, beloved, mainly, it's a weapon. It's a walkie-talkie with home base because we're on the battlefield. Or are our prayers focused on ourselves and on our goals and our wants and desires? And do we pray like Satan is scheming to destroy us and the world and our neighbors and our loved ones? Is that how we pray? That we know that? Does that affect us? I heard someone ask once—I I don't remember who it was—it just—it wasn't me. If God were to answer all your prayers right now, would anything in the world change? or just in your life change. Prayer is an admission of the Christian's insufficiency. That is why it's so crucial in this war, since we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. There is a way, I don't want to get too rigid or even legalistic about it, but there is a way that our prayer life reflects how much need we think we have, And how much need there is in the world, right? And in our families, right? In our families, in our own relationships and friendships, and the people that are hurting in our church right now, for whatever the reason is. Right? This is prayer and supplication. Go deep in prayer. It is an act of submission to God's will. It's a cry for help because we cannot help ourselves. So God's gifts, our armor, and our prayers are inseparable companions in this spiritual war. We're to make supplication for all the saints, beloved. Jesus calls us to engage deliberately in the fact that Satan is at war and he means to destroy us. That should be affecting how we pray. And he wants to silence the gospel everywhere. Our lives are bigger than us. They're bigger than our needs. They're, they're bigger than this. Not because of us, but because of Christ in us. And if Paul needed boldness, like he needed you to pray for his boldness, there, boldness on the level of Paul's is rare. But look, how did he think he got it? prayer, right? If Paul needed boldness, if Paul needed the words to speak, to be given to him divinely by God, how much more would you and I need it? This man had a three-year seminary with Jesus himself. Like, what didn't the man know to say, right? We're, we're, you and I were very, human beings are very pragmatic. Tell me what I need. And if it works, I'll do it. And so we look at evangelism and say, I need a good argument. I need a good closing deal. I need a good technique. Those are weapons of the world. That's how salesmen are successful. We are not salesmen. We're heralds. The ship is sinking. Get on the lifeboat. You know what you need to do that? A loud voice. And we don't mean belligerence and being obnoxious. We mean preach, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with no fear and no reservation. Wherever you are, that's where God has you. You think that you picked your job. You didn't. God put you there for those people. You think that you picked your address. You didn't in Acts. God put you there for those people. That doesn't mean walking to work tomorrow and while everybody's getting coffee, say, Hey, did you know that you're probably going to go to hell if you don't... Except, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Jesus doesn't argue like that. We don't, it, there comes a time certainly to say it. It's part of the truth, absolutely. But just, beloved, so how do I know what to say and when to say? Pray. Pray for boldness and for the words to speak. The deposit of the truth is in you. It's in me in the spirit. Everything we need to be able to say is in us in Christ. So all we're praying for is God, let out what you put in me. Teach me how to speak, when to speak. Beloved, just pray. You don't need me to give you tips. And if you pray, God will bring the opportunities to you and He will give you the words to say. Trust Him. Trust Him. Jesus wants to save people. He's not against doing that. He's not in our way. He's not trying to make it hard for us. Satan is scheming. Satan is working. Satan is infecting minds. So we need something spiritual for that. You don't need another book on how to do this. Just pray, pray, GED or none, college degree or none, 10 years old or 70, just pray. See, I'm, I'm 70, I'm 80, I'm 90. What possibly can I do? Beloved, you're not dead. When God is done with you, you'll be dead and you'll be at home forever. But right now you're here and he loves you and he wants you engaged in this fight as much as anybody else. And since the weapons are spiritual, you don't need to have strong knees or strong backs. Just Christ. We need the strength of our Lord. We need the power of His might. There's nothing in us that gives us what we need to stand. Nothing. It's all in Him, and we have Him. Prayer, supplication, boldness. That's not a matter of technique. This is spiritual warfare. We stand firm. Satan can read books, too. Right? Satan can learn programs too. So if he knows what you're doing, he knows how to thwart it. He's a schemer. So do what he can't touch. Pray. Pray for the words to speak to come to you from God, which is His Word. We proclaim Christ with boldness. Notice that nothing else. Christ with boldness as we ought to. That's the Christian's ought. Proclaiming Christ with boldness. That's a fight because again, we don't believe the fight is purely spiritual So we want to use other types of boldness other types of power We can't employ those things with the gospel or we dilute the gospel. That's first corinthians 1 the gospel is Foolish to the world. There's nothing you and I can do that will change that There's no way we can treat other people that will take away the sting of hearing you're dead in your sins You need salvation. You need to be born again you have offended God. You've sinned against Him. You must repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that God raised Him from the dead. Your good works will never be enough. Beloved, there is no way to soften that blow. But pray and Christ will make it give life to the dead, literally. God doesn't ask us for our boldness because we don't need to look strong. Right? That's God doesn't Our boldness is that of the Lord when it concerns the task to which he's called every member of his church. So the front of the Christian's war, the spiritual war, the front line of that is between truth and lies. It's between life and death. We don't have time for personal petty nonsense. We don't have time. The need is too great. In us and in the world. So our church, Moundsville Baptist, doesn't exist for us. Right? It doesn't exist for us. Now look, I know that's a threatening statement to make sometimes. Beloved, will you please look at me for just a minute and listen to me. And I'm begging you and praying every day that you'll believe me. I am not your enemy. I am not your enemy. All right, we are the church. Every single one of us that is a believer in this place is the church. This is where our war is. I need you like you need me. Not because I'm the pastor, but because I'm Tony and I'm a Christian and you're your name and a Christian. And I need you and you need me. We need to be supplicating for each other. Praying for each other. Because we have a singular task. And beloved, if we get... Embroiled in other fights and conflicts, even interpersonal ones. We will get blinded. We're, we're gonna get duped by the devil because he makes us think, no, this is the fight I have to win. This is where I have to make my stand. Beloved, we are dead. Death died. We died in Christ. We don't need anything but Christ. And we have him and in his word and his promise. He has us. And He won't let go. <coughs> so, we have to each decide where we stand in this war or whether we'll stand in it at all, right? Verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. That's who brought Paul's letter to the Ephesians from prison I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts peace be to the brothers or and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ Paul wants them to know then that their prayers for him that he's asking for are being answered that God is at work and he wants to encourage them and keep them doing what they're doing this little or maybe even a large church in Ephesus that the world knows none of the names of the people in it other than Tychicus and maybe two or three others. They affected the mission of Paul for the nations by praying. Right? By praying. It's not any less of an engagement in mission if all you're doing is praying to support it. Now, there more can be done. Sure, we do that as a church. But don't think like you're like second rate because you're not going to Turkey or something. God moves in you. If that's where you desire to go, by all means, as a church, we should help you do that. But don't think that like if you can't do that, you can't do anything. Beloved, prayer is vastly underrated. Vastly underrated. And then he closes with these words in 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The kind of love that makes a good soldier A devoted one who can't be moved and speaks the gospel with the boldness of Christ's victory coursing through one's veins. Beloved, that's the fruit of grace. Of grace. The same force from God that moved his heart to save us sinners and make us his children creates in us the kind of love we need to stand. Standing is believing and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ on our knees and with our mouths. And the more tightly He holds to us through the truth as we hear it, the more incorruptible and indestructible the deposit of His love for such a Savior in us becomes. Our call to arms as the church is this. Stand firm while God wins the victory. Let Jesus do all the heavy lifting, all the fighting. You stand still on the rock that is Christ. And see the salvation of our God. He's enough. What you and I have in the truth that saved us is enough. Seeing the Ohio Valley turning to Christ then won't be our work. It will be His in and through His means. His church. So beloved, remember this. We aren't down here alone. While he's up there trying our best to keep the kingdom from being overrun by evil. Listen to these words as I close here from Thomas Winger in his commentary on Ephesians. I love this paragraph. I almost jumped out of my seat in my office, but I don't want to be weird. This is great. We saints below neither wait for Christ to win the battle nor fight the fight for him. Christ is not an absent warrior. This is not the perspective of Ephesians. Instead, it proclaims that Christ has already won the battle, that God has raised Him to the heavenly throne and put our spiritual enemies under His feet. Chapter 1, verses 20-23. to 23. That we have already been elevated to heaven with Him. Chapter 2, verses 5-6. and 6. Nor indeed is Christ's victory partial, as if it depended on our holding the ground that He has won at such great price, or even as if Christ expected us to gain more ground for Him, this is not the perspective of Paul who wrote, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8 This salvation does not consist merely in being set on the right path, enrolled in the right army, tasked with preserving a hard-fought victory, but it includes the ultimate gift of emerging from the battle alive and unscathed. If the battle is the Lord's, if Christ is still with us, If he has won the victory, if the arms are given by God, then it would be a mistake to presume that the outcome of the battle is uncertain. That's good writing. Beloved, with our strength found in the Lord and in the power of His might, every member of the church is called to put on God's armor, to stand against Satan's schemes. Since the victory is won and God means to rescue sinners and will. Through our proclamation of the gospel, this is Ephesians. Beloved, there is one Savior and one Lord. And God has sent him to overcome this world so that all who believe may be saved. This is God's will for you. So let us get on our knees and stand. Receive the gift of God's salvation. And live, even if you die.